Well, we are in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Hebrews 2, verse 14. And so you can open up your copy of God's Word to Hebrews 2, 14. And we're going to look from 14 through 18 this morning. Read along with me. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Well, last Christmas, I preached a sermon that I was about to call the greatest Christmas sermon ever from Revelation chapter 1, 12 through 16. Thankfully, I had a few conversations and enough social awareness not to label my own sermon as the greatest sermon ever. But what I was trying to do with the title was to reflect the great and almost scary glory that is captured in John's vision of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 16 concludes of Revelation, In his right hand Jesus held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. A glorious and grand and profound picture of Jesus. And it was an encouraging sermon, I hope, to remember the glories of Christ. You see, many Christians today do struggle to see Jesus as, as holy God, and we get caught up in the cute imagery of a baby in a manger. But in medieval Christian Europe, the opposite was the problem. You see, Jesus was unapproachably holy to many medieval Catholics. In fact, Christmas for the monk Martin Luther, we are told, was hardly a joyous occasion. The incarnation of God becoming man actually terrified Martin Luther. He saw Christ as the perfect man, as, as king overall, sitting on heaven in, in heaven, constantly judging everyone of their failures. There's some terrifying medieval artwork that took Revelation 1 and put it in literal art form with Jesus and this sword jutting out of his mouth, sitting on a rainbow, judging the nations. And so instead of going to Jesus when he needed help, Martin Luther the monk chose to adopt 21 different saints to act as his mediators, to act as his go-betweens between God and man, three for each day of the week. He thought these were real men and women. They understood sin. They understood the struggles that he had. And so Luther trusted them to be sympathetic mediators, faithful saints to bring his request before God. Jesus, he thought, was too terrifying to help him. 
But all that started to change when Luther studied the Bible for himself. And he began to see Jesus not just as a vengeful king, but as a gracious savior and approachable priest. Meek and mild, he willingly laid his glory by. See, he took on flesh to make God approachable. And so after his conversion, Martin Luther wrote to a friend, I now teach people should put their trust in nothing but Jesus Christ alone, not in their prayers to the saints, merits, or their own good deeds. Redemption comes in Christ alone. And all of that gospel truth begins with the incarnation, with God the Son taking on flesh, laying aside the full splendor of his majesty so that he could rescue us. For Martin Luther and the other reformers, as they recovered the biblical teaching of the gospel message, there's a real sense in which they uncovered Jesus. And the hope of Christmas, God taking on flesh. They rediscovered the implications of the incarnation. They rediscovered why we can sing, mild he lay his glory by. Jesus, God the Son, had to be truly human. First, so he could perfectly obey God's law. Second, so he could physically die and destroy death. He had to be made like us, the ones whom he would redeem to do what we could never do and be perfect and then die in our place so that we can be reconciled with God. And so Christ alone should get all the glory. Calvin puts it this way, all the blessings of God flow to us through Jesus Christ. Blessings don't flow to us from Christ through Mary, through saints, through priests, and through sacraments. It is a clear, direct line from Jesus to his children. And as the writer of Hebrews helps us understand, if God the Son were different in any way, any less human, any less God, if he didn't come to earth to live, die, and to rise again from the dead, then we would still be lost in our sin and slaves ultimately to death. See, God humbled himself, took on flesh to fulfill God's perfect plan of redemption so that he could create the great family of God, the great family that transcends generations, nations, languages. He took on flesh so that the full array of God's attributes, his wrath, his grace, his love might be sovereignly played out in his grand story of redeeming sinful humanity. And just as Martin Luther rediscovered the central joy of Christmas that, that God the Son took on flesh so we can have confidence to come directly to God. That's why we sing Come, all ye faithful. Because God took on flesh, because he came, that long-expected Jesus. As we think about the incarnation this morning, we'll look at the end of Hebrews 2, and we're going to notice four reasons that Jesus laid his glory by, so that we can have confidence to come directly to him. 
four reasons that the incarnation gives us confidence to come to Jesus Christ this Christmas. And what I love about Hebrews chapter 2 is that in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, we have just a short couple of verses where we get to see this intimate connection between the beginning and the end of Jesus' life. The glorious birth of the God-man and his culminating work on the cross to deal with sin. And we're reminded why we can come confidently directly to Jesus and directly to God. It's the truth of the incarnation of God taking on flesh that is why we celebrate Christmas. And what I always find interesting around Christmas time is that all types of radio stations play Christmas music with profoundly biblical themes. Do you ever notice that? It's like the, the old Christmas hymns aren't off limits for those Christmas uh, for those stations at this time of year. See, Christmas is and always will be a celebration of the incarnation, a celebration of Jesus who laid his glory by, as we sung in Hark the Herald. I heard of a school one time who tried to take Jesus out of the choir's rendition of Silent Night. I don't know how you do that. But they did, and apparently there was a bit of an uproar as people were like, what are you doing to this classic Christmas carol? You see, by God's common grace and because of our, our rich Christian heritage, even worldly people are a bit confused over trying to take Jesus out of silent night. They inherently understand that Christmas isn't about mistletoe, but about a virgin with child, about Jesus God becoming man. And if you want a passage that you can use to simply help your friends and your family see why it is that God took on flesh, then I want to commend the text before us. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. You see, after our sermon today, I hope that you'll be able to simply walk through these verses phrase by phrase to help remember or, or explain to someone for the first time why Jesus had to take on flesh. They already know that Christmas is about Jesus. So let's seize the moment. Well, first reason Jesus laid his glory by, as we look at the text, you're going to see Jesus came to rescue his children. Number one, Jesus came to rescue his children. If you watch the news, you're aware that Israel is fervently searching Gaza for the hundreds of hostages taken on October 7th of this year. And I heard one report say that Israel is attempting to bring back her sons and daughters. There's intentionality to their search and rescue operations. And if a nation has these goals to search and rescue the sons and daughters, so too does God. His goal in taking on flesh was specifically designed to rescue his children, those who would belong to his family, his sons and daughters. Let's look at 
verse 14, just the very first phrase. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. That term children comes from the previous verses where we see that Jesus' goal in coming was to effectively save and adopt God's children. Look at the middle of verse 10. His goal in coming was to bring many sons to glory. Verse 11, Jesus took on flesh and that is why he is not ashamed to call them, that is the children of God, brothers. And in verse 13, we see a prophecy, the end of verse 13, behold, I and the children that God has given to me. See, the children are the spiritual offspring of Jesus. Turn to John chapter 1. I want want you to see this elsewhere. John chapter 1. We see that the children of God are, are redeemed. They are the ones who will forever be adopted into God's eternal family. They are the offspring given to the Messiah. Even that Isaiah prophesied that were bought with his blood. I mean, just listen to what Isaiah said. He said, it was the will of Yahweh to crush the servant, crush his Messiah. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring he shall know his children the purpose of jesus coming and dying was to save effectively his offspring and then look at john chapter 1 verse 12 and 13 read these verses with me but to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of god Children who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of the will of God. And so we're reminded that Jesus sent, uh, that God sent Jesus on a precision mission to effectively rescue all of his children. It is certainly true that God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. But it is also true that God effectively gathers and rescues his own children. John Piper put it like this. God's design was to offer Christ to the world and to effect the salvation of his children. As John 1 puts it, all of God's children who are those who receive Christ, who believe in his name and trust in his work because ultimately God, what is it said at the end? God willed it. And so the reason why he laid his glory by, the reason why God took on flesh, the reason why God sent Jesus was to rescue his children, to effectively save the redeemed. Let's go back to Hebrews 2. And with that in mind, look at the beginning of verse 14 again. Since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things. There's always intentionality in the plans of God. And his plans are always effective. They are never conditional or dependent on others. 
So God the Son took on flesh to effectively rescue his children. He didn't take on flesh for the possibility for some children to one day come to God's family, just maybe. And so as we just sung in Hark the Herald, Jesus was pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus is pleased because he went on an effective mission. Pleased as a man with men to dwell. It says he knew our names written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1. So beloved, the, the promises of God to never leave us, to n- never forsake us, to preserve our faith, to hold us fast. These promises are certain. Because of the omnipotent, sovereign God of angel armies who upholds the universe by the word of his power, God, very God, took on flesh to effectively rescue us. So he will keep us to the end. So we rest in our settled standing with him and we come to God regularly expressing our complete dependence. All because he effectively rescues us. And God's rescue operation began when he laid his glory by to become like us, to share in flesh and blood. So the first reason Jesus laid his glory by is to rescue his children. And now a second reason that we'll see is to destroy death. Reason number two that Jesus laid his glory by is to destroy death. In the Garden of Eden, God made man to live forever in perfect harmony with him. There was no anticipation of death. In fact, there was no death whatsoever, human or animal, until sin entered the world. Until Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they learned what it meant to die. But in God's grace, it wasn't them who died. It was an animal in their place. You see, after Adam and Eve sinned, they hid from God and they, they covered themselves with, with what? With leaves, with foliage, with, with fig leaves. But, but that's not how Adam and Eve left Eden. God speaks with them. He confronts them of their sin, and then he makes them clothes. Clothes of an animal's skin. And so we see the very first death happened to clothe and to cover Adam and Eve for their sin. And Adam and Eve would wear a constant reminder that death is the consequence of sin. But they were also given a promise in Genesis chapter 3. A promise that one day their offspring would reverse the effects of sin and come and crush the head of Satan, that great serpent, that great tempter of old, a Messiah who would come to destroy death and Satan once for all. This is the great messianic hope that we see from the very beginning of Genesis. And it's the very thing that Jesus will finally and fully accomplish. 
It's why at Christmas we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and remember Jesus as our day spring, the one who brings light, because he alone can disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Jesus came to destroy death. But just like we learned in the garden, the only way to satiate God's perfect justice is with death. The only way to destroy death is with a final perfect death. And so God the Son had to take on flesh so that God the Son could die. That's the argument of Hebrews 2, 14. Read these verse, this verse with me. He says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that is flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Notice the obvious connections to Genesis 1 through 3. Jesus is a substitute death for the sins of humanity. And with his death, his comes victory over Satan. It is only a matter of time until the snake is finally crushed. And don't miss this. Jesus' rescue operation, his, his conquering death, required him to take on flesh so that he could what? Die. He was that promised offspring of Adam and Eve. And he had to physically die on the cross so that he could physically rise from the dead and promise us that same certain glorious hope and announce victory over Satan and his minions. Remember what Satan is called throughout scriptures, don't you? Satan is often called the great accuser of the saints. But since the death of Jesus Christ, Satan's accusations against Christians have fallen on deaf ears. They no longer have any substance whatsoever because the full weight of God's wrath was poured out on God the Son in our place so that we are declared righteous before God, permanently so, when we trust in Christ alone. That's the key to our text. Jesus took on flesh, verse 14 says, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Through his death, through his resurrection, Jesus takes away Satan's key argument before God. Very simply, that we would deserve death. But that doesn't mean that in our world, a twisted celebration of death is always absent. Since the end of Roe v. Wade a few years ago, it has, in fact, gotten easier to get an abortion in the state of Michigan. And compared to the national abortion rate, which has slowly fallen, Michigan abortion statistics continue to rise. And sometimes we are given a stark contrast between an unbelieving world which celebrates death and Christians who know that Jesus Christ has conquered in a single week in June 2015, two 88-year-old ladies died. The first was Ann Gaylor, an atheist, 
who wrote a book titled Abortion is a Blessing. She fought tirelessly for women to shake off the shame and stigma of abortion. For ladies to learn to celebrate the murder of their unborn babies for any reason or for no reason. And Satan loves the celebration of death, sin, and unfettered mockery of God, the giver of life. But in a stark contrast, that very same week, another 88-year-old woman died. Elizabeth Elliot. Miss Elliot was a missionary to the Aka Indians in the Amazon rainforest. The very people who speared her husband to death. Shortly after Jim Elliot was killed, Elizabeth Elliot made contact again with the Alcas and along with her two-year-old daughter, learned their language, lived among them, and shared the gospel of Jesus who conquered death. Miss Elliot loved God, loved life, finding great joy in seeing even some of her husband's murderers come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior who would forgive them. Miss Gaylor hated God, saying nothing fails like prayer and lived to further a culture of death. And even though we live in the midst of the struggle, the struggle between death and life, Christmas is when we celebrate and remember that Christ has won the ultimate victory over death. So come to him. Trust that his work is completed and live to tell others of the life-giving hope of the one who destroys death. That's why in, in the song, Come, Thou Long-Expected Jesus, we, we also sing, Born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. When we know the one who has conquered death, we are free to live without fear of death and free to no longer be slaves of our desires, of our own draw to sin. And so not only does Jesus take on flesh to destroy death, but he also comes to deliver us from slavery. Number three, he comes to deliver us from slavery. I heard that Woody Allen once said, it's not that I'm afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. That's cute. It's funny. It's meant to look at the very thing we naturally fear and put on a brave face. British playwright Somerset Maughan said, death is a very dull, dreary affair, and my advice to you is to have nothing whatsoever to do with it. If only it were that easy. But reality dictates that in 80, 90 years, there might only be a couple of us in this room, probably none of us in this room, who are still alive. That's why the funeral director signs his correspondence with soon to be yours. We all die if the Lord tarries. So how should we think about death as Christians? 
To start with, it is no longer a dominant fear, but a joyful anticipation. So we see in verse 15 that Jesus came to deliver. What does he say, verse 15? Deliver all those who through fear of death, that is us, right, Christians, we are subject to the fear of death, and we're subject then to lifelong slavery. Without the hope of death destroyed, of reconciliation with God, without the hope of forgiveness of sins, then death's sting still remains. And we become slaves to self-preservation at all costs. It's why people spend small fortunes on anti-aging products. I'm not talking to anybody in particular, but the shoe fits. It's why so often the sick spend a majority of their waking hours trying to reverse the effects of their disease or their sickness. It's because without Christ, we are slaves to sin and ultimately slaves to this fear of death. But not Christians. For Christians, we know, according to 1 Corinthians 15, that death has indeed lost its sting. And that to die is to be home with the Lord. To die is necessary for graduation unto eternal life. To die is when our faith becomes sight. And so all who have faith in Christ and his work turn from self-preservation and trust in Christ's liberation. We're no longer slaves to sin and death. We're no longer slaves to the fear of death. But unless you connect your fear of death to the sinfulness of your own sin before a holy God, we're never going to appreciate the incarnation. We're never going to see the need to turn to and trust in Christ. That's why O Holy Night says these words, Long lay the world in sin and error pining. What's he saying? To pine is to long for a resolution. And in this case, to long for the resolution for our sins. To be dealt a death blow by Jesus Christ. The incarnation of that holy night when Christ was born is the answer to our greatest need. Freedom and forgiveness from our sin. That's what everyone needs. So we need to recognize that long lay the earth, world in sin and error pining. So John Calvin wrote, Although we must still meet death, let us nevertheless be calm and serene in living and dying when we have Christ going on before us. If anyone cannot set his mind at rest by disregarding death, that man should know that he has not yet gone far enough to trust in Christ. Look, we don't look forward to the process of dying. We don't try to hasten dying. We hate the pain that ravages of disease, and we we hate these things. But Christians are no longer slaves, but we are free in Christ because he took on flesh, died in our place, and rose from the dead. We're no longer slaves to this fear of death. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. We can have confidence to come to God 
through Christ because he's rescued his children. He destroys death and he delivers us from slavery. And lastly, Jesus came to serve God's family as priest. Number four, he came to serve God's family as priest. Come thou long expected Jesus includes the line, come to earth to taste our sadness. Come to earth to taste our sadness. What a sweet picture of yet another reason that Jesus took on flesh. He took on flesh to empathize with human weakness, to be a perfect, sympathetic high priest. Go over to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Hebrews 4, 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He came to earth to taste our sadness. But it wasn't just to sympathize with us. He came to give us boldness and confidence to hold fast to our confession and to come directly to God. Look at verse 16, right? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Before Jesus, this confidence to come to God was noticeably absent. Only priests in the Old Testament could enter the Holy of Holies, and that only once per year. Only priests could offer sacrifices on behalf of others to pay for the sins of this one sacrificing. Only priests could then burn incenses that symbolized prayers going up to heaven. And that's because without Jesus who conquered sin and death, who opened up a way to get to heaven. There was no such thing as permanent forgiveness. There was no such thing as confidence to come before God until Christ took on flesh and became our priest. There was no such thing as bold, confident, instant access to God. Until Christ took on flesh, we needed human priests to get us to God. And after Jesus, we need only one priest, the God-man. Jesus Christ. So back in Hebrews 2, the priesthood of Jesus is introduced. Hebrews 2, verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. We shouldn't be surprised by the mention of angels here because as powerful, mighty, and important as angels are, they are not redeemable. There is no forgiveness offered to angels. The angel sins, they become what? A demon. And he had just mentioned that Christ is greater than the angels, and so he says, he came and took on flesh, not for angels, but for the offspring of Abraham, for those who would be his children. Verse 17 continues. Therefore, He had to be made like his brothers in every respect 
See, Jesus lacked nothing in his humanity. He wasn't 50% God and 50% human. He wasn't partially uh, human and, and kind of not fully able to understand what it means to be, to, to be tempted and, and to suffer. So no doubt Jesus smelled bad if he didn't shower. He was human. He needed to eat and he needed to sleep. We see that very clearly in scriptures. I'm sure he even got sick when bugs went around in this fallen world because he endured all the temptations that we have. So why did he become truly man? Well, this is the crux of our passage, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, that is humanity, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That word propitiation is a, is a good word. It's a big word, I understand. It simply means a covering for sins. It's a satiating of a payment that is necessary for sins. A full and complete payment to God. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. This concept was very familiar for the Jewish religion. It's what happened with every single sacrifice. As the priest laid his hands on the head of the animal, he helped confess the sins of the one who was sacrificing the animal as he slit the neck of the animal and spilled the blood. A vivid reminder that on that animal laid the sins of the confessor. But that system is no longer valid. It couldn't take away sin forever, as is evidenced by the repetition of the sacrifices year after year after year, month after month after month. But Christ's propitiation, his sacrifice, is full and complete, lacking absolutely nothing. That's what so astounds me with Roman Catholicism and, and, and the theology of the Mass. Even this morning and at every Mass, Catholic priests turn their backs on the congregation and they sacrifice Jesus again on the altar as they believe that the wine turns into the blood and the wafer turns into the body. And the Roman Catholic Church acts as if they must re-propitiate, re-sacrifice for your sins this week. Re-sacrifice Christ for the sins of the faithful. Listen, the only possible lasting payment for sins isn't found in animals. It's not found in the repeated serving of the Lord's Supper, but only in the once for all substitute death of Christ. So Jesus not only offered his substitute, his life as a substitute sacrifice, he was that sacrifice. He died for us because our greatest need is to be forgiven of our sins so that we can stand before a holy God. But he also died because God's holiness and love for justice requires that all sins be punished by death. And so Jesus' sacrifice expresses both God's love and his just hatred for sin. Our needed response is very simple. Turn to Jesus. Believe that he lived a perfect life and died for your sins. Ask him to forgive you of your sins and recognize that Jesus is who he says he is, the Lord of all, that he alone is the only way then to get to God.
when you recognize these things, when you turn and trust in him, you will stop living for yourself. Stop living for all that this world has to offer. And you'll instead live for him. Again, John Calvin wrote, our heart is changed from a stony one to one of flesh when our will is made new and when we are created anew in heart and mind. We are transformed by the Holy Spirit according to the will of the Father and the work of the Son. So then what is the ongoing role of Jesus if his priestly sacrifice is done? You might say our application is found in verse 18. Read this last verse of chapter 2. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus has gone through every temptation imaginable. In fact, because he never sinned, his temptations were perhaps more acute Not to mention that Jesus himself was tempted directly by Satan, something that none of us likely ever will be. Jesus definitely suffered great temptations of all types. That's part of knowing that he is a merciful, faithful high priest. But what does it say he's able to do then? He's able to help those who are being tempted. He can sympathize with you even as you continue to struggle with your temptation. Because temptations are an ongoing reality in our life. We're all going to struggle with sin. We're all going to struggle day by day, moment by moment. Perhaps just yesterday, you struggled mightily. Maybe you even fell in a very stupid, sinful way. Do you remember that Christ is our priest. Christ is the one that we can come to again and again and again. He is there to sympathize with our weakness and to help us in our great moments of weakness. He intercedes for us. The right hand of the Father. Listen to what Hebrews 7.25 says. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is the Christ of Christmas. This is the Christ who opened up heaven. The one who, because he is truly God and truly man, fully identifies with both and can bring the two together. So remember, we have a perfect priest. Run to Jesus. Receive grace and mercy in every time of need. And as we run to Christ, we don't look to impossible perfection, a severe savior or a sword coming out of his mouth ready to devour us. We come to a sympathetic high priest, one who has completely satisfied the wrath of God who alone works our salvation, who alone is our greatest gift. Now, Christmas can be some of the hardest times of the year. You're out of your routine. 
family strife becomes more apparent because you're spending more time with family. And maybe you're aware just of how little good family relationships you have. Worry and anxieties can take over on some longer days off, and it's very easy to feel alone. But I want you to know that you are never alone. Psalm 23 says very clearly, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Christ, the God-man, is your priest, your kind shepherd. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life. God the Son took on flesh to be our guide and our guard, to help us in every valley and to transport us to every peak. He is our greatest gift of all. Martin Luther wrote, the gospel is not the preaching of Christ as an example, but proclaiming him as a gift. Whether a man stands or falls, he is a Christian only if he has Christ. And so he exhorts the preacher we should lead them to the well that is the cross of Christ. So let us drink deep from that well. Let us pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Let us pay much closer attention to the songs that we're listening to and think about the realities of God the Son taking on flesh. Of mild he lays his glory by. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these glorious and profound and encouraging truths. We thank you that you indeed took on flesh to rescue us. You took on flesh to deliver us from death. You took on flesh to keep us out of that constant slavery to the fear of death and even slavery to sin. You've destroyed Satan and all of his arguments that constantly come and accuse us because we know that we are made right. We are declared to be perfect and just before you. Lord, help us to walk ever closer, ever more faithful with you, to remember that you are our shepherd, that you guide us and direct us, Help us to come to you as our perfect priest, as the one that helps us in our moments of need. Lord, and as we sit even in sin and error and pine, we look forward to that day when our faith becomes sight and when you come in glorious hope. Lord, we pray that this Christmas would be a time where we're able to celebrate the benefits, the blessings, and the glorious gift of the incarnation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.